Would you all pray with me? Uh, Father God, we, um, we are here and we're yours. And God, you, uh, you tell us in your word again and again and again uh, how much you love us, how much you want to redeem us, how much you want to use us uh, to bring about your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Father, as we open your word, uh, we ask uh, that you would speak and you would speak clearly and you would speak what each of us need to hear if we need to be reminded of your love for us, if we need to be reminded that you redeem, if we need to be reminded of what you've called us to, would you so specifically speak to each of us? And Father, uh, I am so thankful that I get to do this work. And I give it to you. I surrender my heart and my words, the things I've studied and prepared. I give it all to you to be used however you so choose. But please, Father, by your spirit, come and speak to us, your children. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, Y'all, it's so great. I, I love uh, coming up. I call this North Country. Um, I love coming up here uh, from Herndon. Um, I love being with you all. Uh, one of the things that I love um, is just how well you all love each other. I love um, that the lobby's always full at the beginning of service. In fact, it takes three songs to get everyone in here. Um, I love that you hang out after the service. Um, I, I often go back to Herndon um, and, and want uh, Herndon to feel a lot more like it does up here in Lake Mary, in fact, uh, we steal things from you. Uh, we're doing our very first chili cook-off uh, because of y'all, um, because I, for years I've heard, Lake Mary does a chili cook-off, why don't we? And so uh, we are doing it, but I just love, um, I love this place, and I love uh, how you all have formed uh, such a wonderful community here. Um, and so I want to start by asking a question. Um, what will your marriage one day be? I know some of you aren't married, um, um, but, uh, but if you are married or if you want to be married, what will your marriage one day be? We make choices based on what we believe will one day be. If you're married or want to be married, you make choices based on whatever that picture is. And how vivid that picture is, how rigorous the fight in you for it. However vivid the picture of what will one day be is, that's how rigorous the fight in you for it. Um, I've done a lot of uh, weddings last month. Uh, in my family, we call October Shocktober uh, because uh, when you do a lot of weddings, everyone in Florida thinks October's the best time to get married because the weather's better. It's usually not, um, but, but still, people are hopeful for that. Um, and so in October, I did four weddings, um, and I have uh, three kids who have birthdays in October. So it's between planning kid parties and, and doing weddings. Like It is a crazy time uh, in my family, but, uh, but I love doing weddings. And one of the reasons I love doing weddings is because I get the best view. I get a view that nobody else gets. Well, the groom gets. Me and the groom get the view. And the groom usually only gets this view once in his lifetime, but I get it over and over and over. I get it every time I do a wedding. And that view is when the bride appears at the end of the long hall uh, aisle uh, for the first time, and she's always beautiful. She's at the end, um, and she slowly starts to make her way to the groom. There is nothing that beats that view. Because in her eyes, you can see hope for what will one day be. 
Now, if you are married or, uh, you know, you know how easily that hope can turn to disappointment. Uh, sometimes it can be as quickly um, as the honeymoon when things are going exactly how you thought and it's not as easy and you're not swinging from the chandeliers like your youth pastor promised you if you just waited. You know, like you realize like all of a sudden there can be hard stuff in marriage. It can be a disappointing thing. I um, mean, every couple that I marry, um, and, I, and I've said this before here a lot, and I think it's something that you and I need to be reminded of often, our job in marriage um, is to get up every day and pray and ask our Heavenly Father what He had in mind when He thought up our spouse, and then speak that to them, speak that over them, especially when things go wrong, especially when there's disappointment, especially when there's failure. You and I, we are called to speak that hope, that truth of what will one day be. And this goes for all our important relationships, whether it's uh, with our kids or with our parents or with our close friends. We should be asking God to show us, to give us a picture, a vivid picture of who they will one day be so that we can fight for them. In marriage, God graciously gives us someone to fight for us. I'm still married today uh, because I have a wife who has a very vivid picture of, of marriage um, and a pretty clear picture of what God had in mind when he thought me up. And, um, and, and so much so that she had enough fight in her uh, when other people maybe would have walked away. Because how vivid the picture of what will one day be, how rigorous the fight in us for it. We make choices based on what we believe will be. I think that's why Jesus tells us so many stories about the kingdom of God. I think the reason Jesus tells us so many evocative stories uh, that, that paint this truly vivid, captivating, passionate, technicolor picture is because he knew how vivid the picture is, how rigorous the fight he knew if we are to be engaged in building this kingdom of God, making it on earth as it is in heaven, we have to have some fight in us, a lot of fight in us. Um, and as we're looking at these kingdom parables, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, to try to paint this picture so that we know what we're fighting for, so that we know what we've been called to. And, and Jesus doesn't just give us a simple definition. You can read all through the Gospels. Jesus never says the kingdom of God is. He always says the kingdom of God is like and then he tells us a story or he uses a metaphor or, or he says something somewhat poetic. He kind of paints a picture for us. He doesn't just give us a very practical, one sentence, pithy answer. He says the kingdom of God is like. The writer Flannery O'Connor was once asked if she, could, if she could put her story in a sentence and her response was, well, if I could do that, if I could tell my story in a sentence, I wouldn't need to tell the story, right? Now, she could obviously give the meaning of her story probably in a sentence, but what she was saying is, you won't understand the full picture. You won't be able to have your imagination and your heart um, and your mind um, completely engulfed in the story if I can summarize it in a sentence. You need all of it. The kingdom of God is so important, so massive, that it cannot be defined by one sentence without missing the beauty of it or the power of it or the nuance so Jesus, when he talked about the kingdom, the kingdom that he ushered in, he didn't tell us exactly what it was. He told us stories and more stories. He knew how vivid that picture is, how rigorous the fight. And so in this series, that's what we're doing. We're looking at all these different stories. And today we're looking at the story of the mustard seed. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed on the back of your bulletin, but we're going to read two verses in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. 
Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds can come and perch in its branches. This is God's word. So I want to start, um, I want to start with that last picture because that last picture um, is the picture of what will one day be. So Jesus says, when this mustard seed that's so small is planted, the kingdom of God is like what is produced, this great tree in which birds from all over can come and make their nest. Now, Jesus was talking primarily to a Jewish audience, to an audience that grew up um, knowing the Old Testament scriptures. Many of them had it memorized. Um, And so when he paints this picture of the kingdom as being this tree where birds will come and make a home, immediately they would have thought of some images from the Old Testament. Uh, One is the prophet Ezekiel who said God would plant his people like a tree on a high mountain and in the shade of its branches, every sort of bird will nest there. There's a similar prophecy in in Daniel where King Nebuchadnezzar dreams of birds coming to nest in a mighty tree. In fact, it's a pretty common image in the ancient times uh, of whenever they were talking about like a mighty empire, the mighty empire uh, that protected smaller nations would often be depicted as a large tree giving refuge to birds. So the people listening to Jesus paint this picture, they would have immediately had this image in mind. Okay, The kingdom of God would be this powerful, mighty community that would shelter and protect others, all others, all all sorts of others. Now, remember, his, his audience was primarily Jewish. They had grown up probably in the same part of uh, town. They probably all went to the same doctor. They knew all the same people. They all looked exactly the same. In many ancient Jewish writings, when it talks about the birds of heaven, it's specifically referring to Gentiles. So, So these Jewish people would have thought, okay, the kingdom of God would provide a shelter and a protection for those who we think are on the outside those we think that God rejected, those we think God didn't choose. But in fact, the kingdom of God would be a place that those who feel like they're on the outside, those who who we think are rejected by God, in fact, no, the kingdom of God offers them refuge and protection. That's the picture Jesus is painting. And he's painting this picture to an audience that looks exactly the same, where there there weren't probably any others in the group. They were all the exact same. And he says, listen, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. If you jump into this, if you participate in this, if you come and be about what I'm being about, what currently exists, it will not stay looking like this. In fact, it's going to change. It's going to grow into this mighty community in which all can find rest and protection and safety. Jesus was painting a picture of a kingdom made up of all types that no one group or nation or ethnicity would be excluded. The kingdom of God would be a refuge for all. It would be a vast movement in which members of various nations of different tribes would find protection and rest. And Jesus would would further this after his death and resurrection. If you were here uh, a couple months ago when we studied Acts, the very beginning of Acts, Jesus looks out at his few followers at the time and he says to them, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then Peter, just days later, would find himself standing before a crowd of thousands of people from all over the known earth. And he would preach the very first Christian sermon. He would preach the gospel for the first time. And people from all over would believe. And they'd take it back to their homes. 
And then within a decade or so, Paul is out planting churches all over the place. So all of a sudden, that kingdom picture that Jesus gave these very exclusive little Jewish tribe, all of a sudden, it's exploding and it's happening. One theologian said, in a few hundred years, the religion of the despised Nazarene, being Jesus, the religion that began in the upper chamber in Jerusalem had overrun the civilized world. It, it, it happened. It's been happening. It's still happening. Today, we see the church exploding in, in parts of Asia, in China, um, in parts of South America and India. The church is growing in places of communism and Hinduism and Islam. People from all over, all sorts of people are finding shelter and protection within the kingdom of God. And that's the picture Jesus painted with this mustard seed that grew into a great tree. It's a picture of what will one day be, and it's happening. Jesus was painting for these people a picture worth fighting for. Remember, originally, God dwelt with us. Originally, there was a garden, and there was a tree, and it was beautiful, and, and, and there was complete peace, right? Why was that? Because God was with Adam and Eve. There was, there was no destruction or poverty or disease or death or injustice or brokenness of any kind. God's presence was with them. And in God's presence, that which he creates can flourish. You and I can't be what God had in mind when he thought us up apart from his presence. We were designed, we were built for relationship with him. We were built to be dependent on him. Adam and Eve, before sin entered the picture, they were created to be dependent on God. But we know the result of that was uh, that we said we don't want that. We don't want to be dependent on God. We want to be independent. We want to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We don't want God. We don't need God. And as a result, this is the world we get. But it's not the world that will one day be. And if your picture of, of what this all becomes of what this all is, um, is based on your Twitter feed or on the news. Um, one of the weddings I did this past month uh, was at the beach, and I love, uh, and it doesn't matter how tired I am, if I'm on the beach, I'm, I'm up and I'm at the beach to watch the sunrise. I just, I love, I love it. I can't, I can't miss it. And so I'm there, and, uh, and I got there a little bit early, and, uh, and so after a few minutes, I got bored. So what do I do? I pull out my phone, and I, I start scrolling my Twitter feed, um, and I'm just getting so depressed. And I'm, oh, my gosh, this world. Like, why? Why? Like, this is the worst. Like, everything's falling apart. Like, I'm so depressed. And then all of a sudden, that first light appears, and I look up, um, and I love that first light. When, when the light breaks through the darkness, and it's just like this glorious, like, awe-inspiring. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, ah. I can't believe I get to live here. I can't believe I get to see this. I can't believe this world that I get to be a part of. Um, and I'm looking at it and, you know, you can look at it for a while and then it starts moving kind of slow and it's not changing much. So what do I do? I get bored. And so I go back to my phone and I start scrolling and I'm like, oh, why am I alive? This world, it's falling apart. I hate it. Um, and, I, and I'm feeling myself all getting all tense again. And then I look up and I'm like, ah. I feel myself drop in and breathe and like, this is amazing. Then I go back to my phone. And after doing that a couple of times, I was like, stop, Zach, this is crazy. Yes, everything in our world is falling apart. Everything is decaying. Our pets' heads are falling off. Yes, we know it. Everything is going wrong. We still have another year of political campaigning. Like it's not going to get any better. But when God's presence re-enters the earth, it's like a tree. It's like the greatest of trees in which all birds can find rest and shelter. 
See, Jesus paints this picture of the kingdom in which uh, we see a home that our hearts most long for, desperately want. A place in which there is the presence of God where all of a sudden there is healing. And, and decay and disease and death and, and, and politics, they all just kind of go away. The kingdom of God, to use one of our value statements here at Summit Church, brings holistic salvation to all that is lost. God's salvation is a kingdom. Now, God's salvation is also personal. Because Jesus took your and my personal sin on the cross, you and I are personally forgiven and, and accepted before a holy God. But God's salvation is also a kingdom. God's salvation is not just about you and me, but about the world. God's salvation isn't just about forgiving you and me so that one day we can go to heaven, though that's certainly true, but it's so much more than that. When you get to the end of the Bible, the, the picture painted in Revelation, you don't see us as individuals escaping this world and going into heaven. What do you see? You see heaven coming down, right? And you see Jesus appearing and looking and, and seeing everything that's gone on, all the brokenness and the devastation and the injustice and the poverty, and him saying, look, I am making all things new. God's salvation is about saving souls and the forgiveness of sins, but it's also about ridding the world of brokenness, of injustice, of hunger and disease and death. And how vivid that picture is for us, how vividly we see that picture how rigorous the fight in us for it. God's salvation is a kingdom. Is that picture so vivid for us, that picture of what will one day be? Can we see the kingdom so clearly that you and I have fight in us for it? That's why our local service matters so much. Not because our salvation depends on it. Absolutely not. Jesus did everything necessary to secure our personal salvation. But our local service, how we serve here, what we do matters here because God's salvation is also a kingdom. It's a kingdom that includes all types of people, all sorts of people. It's a kingdom where there is no injustice or hunger or disease or death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a World War II a pastor and theologian in Germany, said the ultimate test of a society's morality is how it treats its children. In our city, the place where God has called us, the place where God is building uh, his kingdom through us, is full of vulnerable children. And if you've been with us since the beginning of the year, you know we, that's where we've focused ourselves locally in serving to come alongside the systems and structures and relationships that serve vulnerable kids. Our city is full of vulnerable kids. We know that in our city, two-thirds of the children that are placed in foster homes move at least seven times in their, in their stay. Um, and the research shows that every move costs a child about eight months of development. So if a child moves seven times, that's five years lost. And y'all, that's avoidable. The reason kids move so much is that there aren't enough homes for them to go to. There's not enough places for them to sleep. And why is that? Because there are people who go through the foster training and, and begin to foster, um, and they don't stick with it. 50% of people don't stick with it. Why? Because it's really hard. 
And we've got several foster families in our church, in our church family, uh, Madison and Alec. Madison, who is, uh, who is up here leading us singing, she just, uh, her and her husband just became a foster family uh, as well. And so if you've been with us, you know uh, that we started this initiative where we're forming care communities around these foster families. Because the research shows if, if a family that's taking in foster kids has a support system, have people who will fight for them, 90% of them will stick with it. That there will be more homes, there will be more places for kids in our city to grow up and know that they are loved and they are wanted. When we first announced this initiative, um, we weren't quite sure how it would go, but it's, it's blown me away. Um, 300 people from our Summit Church family um, have taken the step to be a part of one of these communities. And, and if you want to be a part, we are always looking for more. Uh, because our, my hope is that by the end of 2020, this is what I've been praying since we started announcing this, is that every foster family in the greater Orlando area uh, would have a care community around them if they want it. Now, we can't force ourselves into people's homes, but, but if a foster family wants a care community, that Summit, that we would provide one for them. And the other thing I've been praying, and I, and I, I really, I really want to see God do this, um, is that uh, by the end of 2020, that the 200 kids who are in our city right now who aren't in a home, who are in some kind of group home situation, that those 200 kids will be placed in a family. In fact, that is the heart of God. In Psalm 68, 6, it says, God sets the lonely in families. There are 200 kids in our city right now who will go to sleep tonight and not be in a home where they know that they're loved and wanted. That's unacceptable. That's unacceptable, uh, the, the fact that we have a church our size and there are 200 kids who don't. And so I'm praying that God will put it on some of our hearts because some of us can take those kids in. But it matters doesn't matter about our personal salvation, but it matters because God's, king, God's salvation is a kingdom. That that's what Jesus came to bring about. That he wants us to be about his work while we're here on earth. That's why it matters. Also matters because in our city, one in five children live in poverty. That means one of every five children is in constant danger of harm. Because the research shows uh, that poverty drastically reduces the possibility of a child getting a good education, of having access to health care, and also greatly increases their chances of entering prison. It matters that we move towards vulnerable children in our city. It matters that we're a part of the foster care system. It matters that we go and we partner with schools, maybe schools that are under-resourced, like y'all are partnering uh, with UCP and Lyman. It It is important that you and I move in this direction because we have a picture of what will one day be, that every kid matters, that every kid is loved. And if you've been listening carefully over the last year and a half, uh, you might have picked up on our lead pastor, John Parker, one of the things he's really trying to push us to as a church family. Um, He's talked about us becoming a multi-ethnic church. Now this, just like Jesus talking to those Jewish people, this is a picture of what will one day be not, not a current reality. I mean, I'm white. You saw the band. They're pretty white. Most of the leadership is white. And so we're not, that's not where we are but it's where we want to be because we believe that it's important to being kingdom-minded. It's important to to, to value moving towards a more multi-ethnic expression of church. It's important for us to gather together with people who are very different from us and worship Jesus. And in fact, if we are going to really be serious about our efforts to move towards vulnerable children in our city, this is an important part. 
When you take poverty, when you take the poverty rate and you add race to the equation, the danger level for that child skyrockets. Dr. Marion Elderman says the most dangerous place for a child to grow up today is at the intersection of race and poverty. So we as a church have to talk about these things. We have to talk about race. We have to be a church that values diversity and values a multi-ethnic community. In order to be about the kingdom of God, we have to move towards an expression, a local expression of church that looks a lot more like the city that we're called to serve. The greater Orlando area is 61% white. We are 84% white. So on, on the surface, we've got a long way to go. And maybe even on the surface, you might have heard John talk about this at Vision Sunday 2018. And you may think, well, not a lot has changed then. So maybe we've abandoned that idea. We haven't. In fact, as a staff, we're really seeking the Lord and praying and, and asking God to give us this picture that is so vivid so that we know what we're fighting for. Our staff has all been a, through a cultural, co cultural competency assessment and had some intentional trainings. Everyone on staff has been put in these little cohorts where we're, where we're reading things and talking about faith and race. Um, I just read a book uh, by a pastor, another white guy, um, by, uh, by a pastor by the name of Daniel Hill, and it's called White Awake. And Daniel really began to be convicted about this picture that's painted at the, at the end of the Bible of what the kingdom of God looks like. And, and it's this diverse expression. And he was serving at Willow Creek up in Chicago, and it's a very diverse city. And so he said, I'm going to go in <coughs> and I'm going to plant a diverse church in, in urban Chicago. And he went in and he planted in urban Chicago, an all-white church. And, and so he wrote a book uh, called White Awake to, to show like what he learned through that process. And it was, uh, it was hard, and, and, uh, but it was so good for me. And I want to encourage you, if you're white and you go to Summit, you should read this book, and then we should go grab coffee and talk about it. Uh, because in it, um, he brings up some things that are really important for us to wrestle with as we move towards vulnerable children and as we seek to look a lot more like the kingdom of God. And one of the things that he says that really stuck with me was his definition of privilege. He says, privilege is being able to walk away from the conversation on race. My white brothers and sisters in Christ, our brown and black brothers and sisters in Christ cannot walk away from the conversation on race. So how can we not stay in it with them? And listen, one of the things that I've been learning is that it costs people who are minority to be a part of our church. We're a very welcoming place, um, and we want everyone to be here. Uh, but, but there's a cost to them. And so if you are non-white and you are here, I want you to know I'm so thankful that you're here, and I know that it costs you to be here. And listen, I know that we're probably going to get some pushback. Every time we talk about this, we get some pushback. Um, when I talked about this at Herndon last week, um, I told everyone I'm not checking my emails uh, that day. I'll check them the next day. Um, and, but anyways, y'all are going to send them to OJ anyway. So send them to OJ today if you'd like. Um, but this is what, I, this is what, what typically, if someone's feeling something about this that, that feels like, ah, I, don't, I don't know if I agree with this, a lot of times what, what will be said is I just feel like we're getting off message. Um, I feel like someone's going in a direction um, that, is, that is minimizing the gospel. And my response to that is, Summit is completely committed to the gospel. In fact, 
it's only the gospel that frees us to actually enter into some of these hard conversations, these conversations that we see happening in the culture around us that are going horribly wrong. The church, those people who believe the gospel actually can enter into these conversations in such a meaningful and helpful way because the gospel at its core says, we're the problem. We don't have to act like we're not the problem. We don't have to act like we've played into things that have added to the problem that we find ourselves in. The gospel says you and I, we personally are the problem so much so that God had to send his only son to die for us to fix the problem. So you and I, we are free to actually look at this problem and talk about this problem. And as a church, we're going to do that. Because how vivid the picture of the gospel, how rigorous the fight in us to see the kingdom of God come. Tim Keller says there's a direct relationship between a person's grasp and experience of God's grace and his or her heart for justice and the poor. And I would add racial reconciliation. But y'all, this is slow work. And going back to the parable, Jesus painted this picture of what will one day be, but he told us it would be slow because he said it starts as a mustard seed. What does a farmer do with the seed? He plants it in the ground. And so the first stages of its growth are completely hidden, unseen. Jesus knew that the kingdom of God would be like that. At times, the growth would seem almost imperceptible. We would maybe even think it's not happening. But Jesus told us this story with this tree because he knew when it's hidden, when it's moving slowly, when you and I are ready to throw in the towel, we can look up and remember, wait, one day, one day, and we can keep fighting. The work of the gospel is often unseen and hidden, yet little by little, the kingdom is always growing. It grows every time someone admits that they can't do life on their own anymore, that they're the problem, that they need a savior and they turn to Jesus. It grows every time one of our kids in base camp says, I'm gonna follow Jesus no matter what. It grows every time someone in 33rd realizes that even though they're locked away, that they matter and that what they do in that space and that time it can make a difference. It matters every time you and I show up at a school and cheer on some kids uh, that aren't ours uh, just simply because they matter to God. It matters every time a husband stays, even when it would be easier to walk away. It matters every time you and I enter into a hard conversation about race and when we feel guilty or attacked or whatever, we stay in it. See, the kingdom of God is not always obvious, but it is always growing. The tree where the birds of every sort will find shelter, it is growing. It's not some mythical tree. Jesus says it is happening. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all seeds. I'm kind of working backwards here, um, but this is it. We're wrapping it up now. The mustard seed is small. The kingdom starts small. Kingdom work starts small. It doesn't have to be some huge, massive thing. It's a small step. Kingdom work always is a small step. In establishing his kingdom, God started small, literally a single cell. And how insignificant it had to have seemed at the beginning. A child conceived out of wedlock, growing up in a backwater town called Nazareth. In fact, all growing up, people asked, you know, who's your dad? Or what good can come out of Nazareth? A child born into poverty, overlooked by society, who, who lived in pretty much obscurity for the first 30 years of his life doing the family business. And then all of a sudden he's thrust on a public stage. He becomes this itinerant preacher, a miracle worker. And for a while, 
People are all wanting to know, like, what, what's going on? What's he going to say? Who's he going to heal next? And then all of a sudden, everything turns on him. And he dies like a criminal. And not only that, his few followers at the time are so feeble in faith that at the minute he gets captured, they bail. That was the seed of God's salvation. Who would have guessed? One theologian said, if ever there was a religion which was a little grain of seed at its beginning, that religion was the gospel. And yet, from that small, seemingly insignificant beginning, the kingdom of God grows. And that's what you and I have been invited into. So whenever we get discouraged, when we're scrolling through our Twitter, when we feel like, oh man, that conversation didn't go well, or I'm, I'm, I don't feel like this is moving the needle at all, we need to remember that the kingdom will grow. It is growing. Jesus gave us a picture of what will one day be. And the twist is that he's the one who actually fought for it. Jesus is the definition of privilege, deserved privilege. God deserves all the glory and honor. And yet, we're told in Philippians, Jesus did not count equality with God. He didn't count his privilege as something to be held on to. And in fact, instead, he didn't walk away when it got tough. He moved more towards it. Jesus on the cross was fighting for who you and I will one day be. So what's he asking you to fight for? What's right in front of you? What's some small step that you can take towards being about the kingdom, towards making it on earth as it is in heaven? Maybe it's figuring out how to get involved with the foster care system. Maybe it's being a foster family. Maybe it's coming alongside UCP or Lyman, or, or, or maybe it's just reading the book Wide Awake. I don't know what the step is for you that will help paint that picture but if you don't have a very vivid picture, we can all ask for it. You can just start praying, God, I want a picture, a vivid picture of the kingdom that is to come so that I have enough fight in me for whatever you call me to. And listen, if you pray that prayer, I promise you he will start to paint the picture. Two years ago, we as a, as a leadership team at the church started praying, what would it look like for us to move towards our city locally in a very intentional way? Um, and God has just made that picture more and more and more clear. So what's right in front of you? What small step, what small and radical step can you take? And we take those steps knowing this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for uh, this picture. I thank you for all the pictures um, that your word paints uh, for what will one day be. And Father, I thank you that you've given us a family, a church family um, that can together pursue this picture. And Father, sometimes uh, it can be hard. Sometimes we can feel like it's not happening or it's not growing. Uh, Father, I pray uh, that you would give uh, this church family such a vivid picture that we can't help but fight. That you would give us everything we need for, for the amount of fight that, 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 will, that it will require. And Father, for each of us individually, I pray that we would so clearly see the gospel that the gospel would so free us that we can move into hard places and know that we're still loved by you, that we're still wanted by you, and that no matter what, you will 
use us. And we pray all of this in our Savior's name, in Jesus' name, amen.